This is Victory Over Sin. My name is Mark Rennick. Good afternoon, Treasure Valley. I hope your day is going well. Uh, We're going to do something a little bit different today. We're going to let Mark try to carry the whole show, which is scary to me. I got to be honest with you. I thought it about time, really, for us to give you a little bit of a history about systemic change of Idaho, how we got started and what we are and what our manifesto is, if you will. We're going to go to a few taped interviews, but by and large, we're just going to try to talk to you this morning. So Systemic Change of Idaho is funded by the Southwest Council for Southwest Conference of St. Vincent de Paul. And it's really an outgrowth of one of their individual conferences. It's called the Reentry Conference. That conference actually sees people, returning citizens, as they're released from incarceration. We go out and we meet with them, and we offer them some support for rent. We offer them some support for housing, rent housing, and then also some clothing, maybe some bus passes. But we sit and we talk with them. And this has started about three and a half years ago. I've been a volunteer on that group for about three and a half years. And it got real successful, and it got some really good numbers. People started talking about it, and we got some attention nationally. Uh, And nationally, through St. Vincent de Paul, there's a group that works with reentry in different states, and they had been working in five states. And because we had gotten some real positive influence and uh, doing some good work here in Idaho, they took a liking to what we were doing. They came out and visited And then we started talking about a different project. And that is what has become Systemic Change of Idaho. And so kind of points out to um, terms of as you're going forward that if you keep doing the right thing, things, good things happen. So we're excited about Systemic Change of Idaho. Number one thing, obviously, you're listening to this radio show and it does support this radio show. So it allows us to get this message out. We've done a listening forum in which we've brought community leaders together. And we bought people, brought people who are returning citizens to listen to the issues that affect those of us who are on parole and who are trying to make a success on parole. Uh, we've had steering committees for about six months where we've tried to get key people together to talk about what's going on in uh, the community and what's going on in their lives as we can try to make things a little bit better. And then we've also kind of connected with other national groups. We've gone to a couple of different meetings and tried to link with what other peoples are doing in the community. And that's the basic core of what we've been attempting to do. I know that I've gotten different sorts of responses as we put this together. And I kind of want to read a, a text that I got from a friend of mine this week. He was saying, he says, uh, Mark, hey, I want to help with your prison reform, but you really need to do it outside the system, because if you work with the key players that are a part of the system, I really believe it will stay the same. Let me know. You want to have coffee? I got some ideas. My friend here misses the point, I think, entirely in terms of what we're attempting to do. You know, this is really driven by the people like me and hopefully like you if you're out in the desert getting out soon or you're out there working, doing good things in the community and you've been in the system. That isn't what we're after. We're not going to battle against the system and to attempt to change it. We're going to articulate the views that we have that are our difficulties. We have difficulty with transportation. We have difficulty with housing. We have difficulty with a multitude of different sorts of things. And we're going to get together and we're going to put these together in a real systematic 
professional way. And then we're going to develop a speakers bureau in which we can go out and share those views with Knights of Columbus, service groups, HR divisions, churches, anybody that would love to have a person who is uh, knowledgeable about this. This will be a real professional situation in which we'll go out and we'll present it. And then we'll offer questions at the end so that we do an education in terms of going forth people who have been in the system, letting people who realize that they're big people in the system and that they're just normal people like you and me. So that is our ultimate goal. My friend here was a little bit off in terms of what we're doing. We're trying to get new people who are returning citizens who have been in the system who are willing to engage and to learn this process with me. I got to be honest with you. When we started this, I thought I could easily get 20 people to do this. And we've been into it, into it six or seven months now, and I'm having trouble coming up with the right personality. I need a real person who's out there who wants, who has a heart to change, who will sit with us. I don't have all the answers, but I want to get the answers from the people who have lived it and who are living it right now. So those are the people I need. Those are the people I seek. Those are the people we're still trying to find. So if that touches your heart, at the end of the show, we're going to kind of talk about how you can reach out to us and let us know that you're interested. And that'll be important for you to kind of share. Um, one of the other things that um, I think is important as we go forward with this, we'll also have a, probably a workshop coming up in the spring or potentially the summer in terms of as we try to articulate this, we'll try to do it real publicly with uh, uh, radio stations and media around there so that we can articulate this. And again, I want to keep in mind that it, uh, this will be a professional approach as we go forward. Our success really relies on finding the right people to do this. And as those people come through forward and we get the speakers bureau, then we of course will uh, pay those speakers, speakers to go out and present that. So it's a way of not only giving back your time in terms of your energy, and you can feel confident about going forward and doing this project, project if you will, but um, it will be exciting for us and we can potentially change the way people view people who have been incarcerated. Some of the issues that we have come up with so far are certainly an employment um, application where you have to check you're a felon. We'd like to do away with that. 24 states in the nation have done away with that. We would like for Idaho to follow that. The second, what we've defined so far, is what we're calling immediate social reinteraction issues. Okay, that's the that's the multitude of self-esteem issues that affect those of us who are on parole what we have to go through, what we have to, where we have to be, what we have to do. And it's the process of just being a felon. That kind of hits people right upside the head too often when they're out there and they're thinking, man, I've got to be here, I've got to be here, I've got to do that. So that's the category that's the second kind of issue that we're attempting to deal with. Uh, the third issue, I think, is housing because there's a 2% vacancy rate for all rental housing in the Treasure Valley. And what we'll attempt to do, it makes it diff more difficult if you have to check a felony box there too. So that's the third issue. And I think then we're also looking at potentially the way that different prosecuting attorneys um, deal with people who have been in the system who have two felonies. As you may be aware, or you maybe you're not aware, it's at the discretion of the prosecuting attorney for each county in Idaho to say to the person with two felonies, if you proceed with this next infraction when you're incarcerated, we're going to add a persistent violator to it and potentially add five years to the sentence. So that's an issue that we'd like to talk to the prosecuting attorney about. So those are the things that we're doing in a local level 
with this money that we call systemic change of Idaho. The interesting thing is that we've got models for other people who have been doing similar things that we're kind of following. And I'm going to give a, we're going to share some time with a man by the name of Glenn Martin. He runs an organization called Just Leadership USA. We'll listen to Glenn Martin. He's from New York City. On the Hudson River line I'm in a New York state of mind Just Leadership USA is a not-for-profit agency dedicated to cutting the U.S. correctional population in half by 2030 while reducing crime. The agency strives to empower people most affected by incarceration to drive policy reform. Glenn Martin is the founder and president of the agency and spoke with us recently about the unique perspective he brings to the work and the challenges of building an advocacy movement. My name is Glenn Martin. I'm the founder and president of Just Leadership USA, an organization with the goal of cutting the number of people under correctional supervision in half by 2030. Some of the challenges facing Just Leadership USA include the fact that the theory of change uh, puts us a bit ahead of people who are in the field that we're working within. So in some ways, we're trying to help our colleagues use their imagination to understand the value that our leaders bring to the table in the movement to reform our criminal justice system and end mass incarceration. And then on a very practical level, I mean, if you're ahead of the curve on the idea, then by definition, you're ahead of the curve uh, on the funding. And so in some ways, we're sort of hoping our philanthropic partners catch up to the vision that we have for investing in these leaders. So to address the challenges that I've come across in philanthropy and in the field around people having a hard time uh, envisioning the value of investing in formerly incarcerated people, I've done two things. One is to use my own personal story and testimony a lot more often to help people wrap their heads around this vision I have for investing in other people like me. Uh, and two is to help people uh, look historically. You know, if you look forward, uh, it might seem daunting and the idea of including people who have served time in prison as part of the solution may be something that people have a hard time wrapping their heads around. Uh, however, if you look historically in this country, any uh, meaningful movement has included the voices and leadership of the people who are most oppressed by the system that you're trying to reform. Our uh, particularly bold and ambitious goal of cutting the number of people under correctional supervision in half by 2030 sets us apart from most people in the field, definitely when we launched. Um, and what it means is that we have to find uh, unique ways to fund our organization um, because we don't believe that once we get beyond the whole shiny new thing, right, when organizations fund you for the first couple of years, um, that we'll be able to sustain that sort of support without thinking about ways of being creative. And so one way is that we're a membership organization. And so we currently, in less than a year, have a few thousand members from around the country who each pay just $1 per month to be, to be uh, members of our organization. And what that creates for us is a pool of hopefully unrestricted funding to help fund uh, uh, our program to do the work the way we think it needs to be done. And it diversifies our funding and simultaneously it builds a base of support for reform, not much unlike other membership organizations, whether it's uh, ACLU or NAACP or even uh, one of the largest, which is uh, AARP. 
So you're kind of We've gotten through year one successfully. We've trained over 100 formerly incarcerated people, representing over 16 states around the country. And so as we go into year two, I think we go from helping the world understand what the leadership training has done for these leaders to what these leaders can do for the movement. And so in year two, we move into the advocacy space. We inject our leaders into the existing conversations. We don't necessarily line them up with uh, the policies that are being proposed currently, because the truth is we believe that some, many of those policies actually fall far short of the vision we have as an organization. But we position our leaders, we strengthen our leaders, uh, we support our leaders in being out there and holding the field accountable to responding to the voices and the vision uh, as defined by people who are most impacted by these issues. On profit uh, in industry, if you will, is becoming increasingly professionalized, increasingly sophisticated. Um, and I was lucky enough to have 13 years of nonprofit experience that helped for me to demystify what it takes to build a business and to fund a nonprofit. And sometimes those two things don't line up with each other. Um, but what works for me is when I ask myself the question of whether the pursuit of the business end of the work aligns itself with the mission as opposed to the other way around. Because you can find yourself chasing dollars relatively quickly. I had a funder on the phone just yesterday who kept asking me to show evidence that our leaders were going to be tied to very specific pieces of legislation that are currently being moved forward. And I said to her, well, that's sort of the antithesis of what it is we're doing here because our leaders are the first ones to say that the proposals that are currently out there fall far short of what their vision is for reform in this country. And so that meant potentially letting go of those uh, potential resources. And in that particular case, we were talking about $100,000 per year for three years, a pretty considerable investment, yet an investment that I would argue might take us in the wrong direction if we chase those dollars. I think that other agencies can learn from Just Leadership USA, uh, a very young organization, a very new organization, is actually humility. You know, we spend a lot of time asking questions about what we're doing well and what we're doing poorly and soliciting feedback from our constituents, from our clients, making sure we're listening to their voices, allowing them to challenge us, allowing them, them to help us further shape the program, shape the vision, shape the mission, um, and essentially sharing power. Even as I launched Just Leadership USA just a short year ago, I did come into this trying my damnness to really focus on not building a business and instead building a movement. And I find that, yes, I'm building the business around that movement, but the more I think of movement building versus building a business and having the building of the business be the sort of frame around what it is I'm actually trying to do, uh, the more successful we are as an organization. So for instance, we've gotten through our entire first year without a physical brick and mortar location. And most people go the other way around. They want to have a, a place. They want to show people they're in business. I find that showing people in, in business means investing in the very people we say we care about. And they've become the ambassadors for us. And now as we go into year two, we're thinking, oh, we need a physical space. But that is not the traditional approach to building an organization. People tend to look at the sort of nuts and bolts and say, that's where I start. I actually think that uh, that's not the right way to go. The right way to go is to follow your heart, follow your mission, stay on focus, and then build the sort of bricks and mortar stuff around you as you need it to be more successful. But if I were advising a person who's building an organization, I would say, you know, you can't divorce yourself from the fact that you, as the visionary leader, is the initial investment people make. People invest in people. 
You know, people follow ideas and people. They don't, I mean, half my funders probably don't understand our leadership program in detail. But what they understand is that there's this charismatic, passionate leader who's interested in either leading from the front of the room or leading from behind, but leading. And so I do think it's the responsibility of the person who has the vision, the person who launches the organization, to make that commitment uh, to the work. Because good work alone doesn't get funded personalities, visions, uh, big ideas get funded. And so that's part of my job, to be quite honest. And you're talking to a person who grew up in a household, uh, a Caribbean family here, new to the United States, where everything my mother taught me was to avoid the limelight and avoid authority and, and stay below the radar. And everything I do now is actually quite the opposite of that. That when you go this far down the road uh, with policies that have hurt such a large group of Americans, over 100 million uh, with an arrest or criminal record on file, that the way to hit a tipping point, the way to undo that is changing the consciousness of this country, of getting to a point where enough Americans say, enough is enough, this is wrong, not in my name. That was Glenn E. Martin, and you can go to his website, look him up, and you'll find out all sorts of information about his organization. He's doing great things. The thing I love about what he does, the hashtag half by 2030. That's the important figure, I think, that he puts out there. He's looking to decrease the amount of people incarcerated in the United States by 2030. That's fantastic. But the one thing you'll notice as he talked, if you listen to it, because we're on a Christian radio station, there's no mention of God. There's no mention of anything along those lines in terms of a spiritual approach to fixing this situation. And I think for me in particular, as especially in the last couple of weeks that we've been putting this together, I've run across situations where, boy, you know, in that Christian aspect where my faith is not involved, things don't work as well for me. And I don't know whether that's what happens with you, but I think that's what probably happens with Mr. Martin when he gets going. I think the man is, he probably is a person of faith, but he keeps it to himself. What we're going to attempt to do is always do what we do with God as a major aspect of what we're going forward. Uh, I was in a situation last week, which I noted a little bit last week on the radio show, but I was at a recovery rally where here everybody in the state was looking for more money from the state to do X, Y, and Z. And in all the people talking, there was no mention of God. There was no mention of attributing the success that they had in their lives to a relationship with Jesus Christ. And I know in, in particular, several of the people on the panel have that relationship, but did they address it? No, they were looking for the state to give them money to go forward. I think you find this too much in, you know, what we call traditional 12-step groups, where they address, address a process, where they address a situation in which cognitively, if they approach these things, that their lives will be better and things will go forward for them. And I just don't think that's necessarily the case. You know, the logical partners that we might have as we go forward to make this effort, you got to look at some of them. You can name the names that you think. You don't think of them as strong Christian partners. But we're going to seek to find coalition people who come around us who actually will profess and openly talk about believing in God. And that's a very important thing. I think when I don't do that, I find myself in trouble. I find myself frustrated. I find myself getting let's say, apprehensive about the meeting that I've got coming up. Um, and because I know that I'm going into a spot 
where God's not going to be there and it's not going to be a priority. And I don't know whether that happens to you, but it certainly happens to me. And as long as we're in charge of this situation, we're going to be doing that. One of the people who do this so well is a man by the name of Francis Chan. And I'm going to let Francis Chan talk about the two lies that are so important in the church today. He does this so well and he does it for just a couple of minutes. So let Francis Chan talk about that. I believe the two scariest lies on the earth right now that are so prevalent are number one, you are a good person. And number two, because God is a loving God, he will not punish. I believe those are lies that are told every day all around our country and people are believing them. Number one, that you're a good person, that we're all good people. Every funeral you go to, you hear people say, he was a good person, she was a good person, they're in a better place. And we have this belief that, you know what? I do more good than bad, and I, I do a lot of good deeds. I think by nature, I'm a good person. The reason why that's a lie is because God says so. And in Romans chapter three, he explains that all of us are sinners. None of us are good. In fact, in, in Romans chapter three, he, he says that all, both Jews and Greeks, are all under sin. As it is written, none is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they've become worthless. No one does good, not even one. In, in verse 23, it says, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Okay, you've got the world and probably many of your friends and maybe even your own heart and feelings telling you, I'm a good person. And then you have the word of God where God says, well, when I look at the world, I look down and I don't see anyone righteous, not even one. I see their sin and I see, he says, and the wages of sin is death. They all deserve this punishment. You've got to remember the things that God has done in history, like when he looked at the world in, in Genesis chapter six, and he says, gosh, I'm greed. Look at the world, they're all so evil. I'm just gonna flood the world and destroy them all. I'm sure there were people on the earth back then saying, I'm a good person. I feel like I'm a good person. All my friends say I'm a good person, but God looks at the world and says, there, there's no one righteous there. I'm gonna destroy them, except for Noah. Uh, I'll save him and his family. Everyone else, I'm going to flood. I'm going to destroy the whole world. You see, and it goes with that second lie that is so destructive, where nowadays people are saying, how could a loving God punish? There's no such thing as hell. I mean, God's not really going to punish me at the end of my life. Well, well, again, look at his actions. Would a loving God flood the whole earth? Yes, he would because he's a God of justice and a God of wrath also. And again, you look, at, you look at the book of Revelation, it's all about, look at what this loving God does. In Revelation 20, it says in verse 10, it says, the devil who deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophet were, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. So to say God is not a God who would punish, here he is tormenting someone, you know, the beast specifically and the false prophet, you know, is saying, you know what, they, they will be tormented day and night forever and ever, that's God. And then it says later on in verse 15, if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. 
Okay, so you have this lie that everyone's telling you, you know what, if God's a loving God, he, he, he wouldn't punish. He, and yet you look at the book of Revelation and people say, well, that's, that's old school. No, it's the book of Revelation. It's talking about the things that are going to happen. And so at some point we've got to say, who's the authority? Is it the culture nowadays that says, you know what, there's no punishment for sin, God's a loving God, He's not a God of wrath anymore, He's changed, you know, or is it the Word of God that says, you know what, yes, He is a loving God, but He's also a God of wrath. There will be a day of punishment. Look, these are two very destructive lies. Number one, that you're a good person. And number two, that God does not punish. We have to look at God's Word and say, well, that's contrary to what this book says. And because of that, we all need this salvation from God. So the world's trying to teach you, the Satan himself is trying to teach you that, look, there's no punishment and you're a good person. This way you don't have to be saved from anything. And what the Bible says is, no, we need Jesus. We need what he did on the cross for us. We need to be saved by him. I love that video Francis Chan does in terms of talking about the things that the church needs to address. And I think, again, we're going to come back to who we're looking for in terms of coming on board and helping us. If those things touch your heart, if you're excited about attempting to make a change, then we need to hear from you. These are the people that we want to. I want those people to come alongside me, listen to the things that Francis Chan's talking about, and say, you know, I can do this. I want to get involved in this. I'm excited about this. And get in touch with us, and let's go forward. I think that we really can do this thing, and it's important that we do it. Uh, RZIM Ministries has a man by the name of Stuart McAllister who did some writing that I, I was fond of and I found this week. He's talking about warriors in terms of coming around. He wrote an article in there called uh, Rebels Without a Pause, which is kind of nice. But he addresses something that I want to read for you. And he gets to my guy C.S. Lewis here. He says, he says, a workable structure for life. Romans 7 provides one of the most descriptive insights into the struggles of a moral conscience with real evil, with the desire to be free from tormenting weaknesses. Here we see a conflict between the desire for the good, but the inability to do it. The author sees the tension. He wants one thing and does another because he lacks the power to change of change. Yet at the end of the chapter, he sees the deliverance and the power can come come in and through Christ. Who will rescue me from the body of this subject to death? Thanks be to Lord, to God, who delivers us through Jesus Christ our Lord. The new life in Christ is the down payment of the Spirit, what C.S. Lewis calls the good infection. I love that good infection. The key to real freedom, the key to actual liberation, is found in the power and the new kind of life imparted to the end, which begins with a journey of transformation. So if you're out there and you're listening to my voice and this is something that you're interested in and becoming a part of, we certainly want to talk to you. You can go to our website. It's uh, www.systemicchangeofid.org. Or you can give us a call at area code 208-477-1007. My name is Mark. We look forward to hearing from you and talking with you as we go forward. And uh, thank you for joining us today on Victory Over Sin. We hope to see you next week, 1230 in the afternoon on KBXL. Thank you so much for listening. Let's go. I used to do it too.